Storm is a pretty general term. According to the Cambridge English Dictionary, storms are defined as violent weather, which if you've ever found yourself in the middle of one, I think you can agree. Nothing like getting your face pelted with hail or your bones shaken by thunder, right? And while you're out in a storm, hoping it will be over soon, you feel like you're under a lot of pressure. Pressure to find cover or stay safe? Well, in the sky, pressure changes also go hand in hand with storms. We're just not talking about the emotional kind of pressure change. Hi, I'm Kate Harubi, and this is Go Forth in Science podcast, where we combine adventure and science into a tale that will hopefully make the next time you step outside even better. We've talked about water density in a few previous episodes of this podcast, but now we're going to venture into air density. As I talk about it, you'll find it's pretty much the same. Air floats around in our sky, getting heated up by the sun, cooled down by higher altitudes, or transferring its heat with our planet's surface to be the same temperature as the land or ocean. And similar to water, warmer air is less dense, while cooler air is more dense, so these different pockets of air can move up and down in the sky. The warm air rises, and the cool air sinks. But when we're talking about air, we often refer to pressure instead of density. If air is rising in our atmosphere, if it's less dense and wants to float up, it creates a low pressure zone as that air moves away from the ground. Alternatively, denser air sinks and creates a high pressure zone as more of that air gets packed in near the surface. But air wants to equalize and try to be the same pressure everywhere, so some of that air in a high pressure zone will end up flowing into a low pressure zone. And wait, flowing air is just wind. So in low pressure zones, we have wind spiraling into the area and rising. As this air climbs up and up, it reaches colder parts of the atmosphere. But once the air cools off, water settles out and condenses into clouds. With clouds comes rain. So now we have wind, clouds, rain, which, yep, can come in the shape of a storm. So while storms may increase some of our own personal pressure, we can actually thank lower pressure in the atmosphere for these phenomenal weather events. Wind speed is determined by the closeness of the isobars, which is a fancy way of saying that the higher your high pressure, lower your low pressure, and the less distance between those two pressure pockets, then the faster your wind. If you're used to looking at topographic maps of your favorite hike, then you'll be familiar with all the little lines on the map showing different elevations. If the lines are closer together, then the steeper the hill or valley. Isobars are those little lines, but for pressure in the atmosphere instead of land topography. And just the same, if those lines are closer together, then you have a steeper gradient between the high and low pressures. And the steeper the gradient, the faster the wind, as the air rushes quickly into the low pressure zone from the high pressure zone. The severity of a storm is often measured by wind speed. For example, when we're talking about hurricanes, a Category 1 hurricane has wind speeds between 75 to 95 miles per hour while a Category 5 hurricane has wind speeds of 157 miles an hour or higher. Tornadoes can reach wind speeds of 300 miles an hour, but luckily they're concentrated to a much smaller space than a hurricane. But what about storms that aren't as windy as a hurricane? Well, then we can pull out our tea and crumpets and turn to a well-used measurement developed in the 1800s by the British Navy, the Beaufort Scale. The Beaufort scale goes from 0 to 12, with a 0 being totally calm, no wind at all, and a 12 being a hurricane. Each category has specific wind speeds, 
but then also talks about the effects of the wind, like white caps on waves or uprooted trees. So even if you're not sure what the specific wind speeds are, you can still figure out what kind of storm you're in. I've only been working on boats for the last five or so years, and mainly just for the summer months. So for this episode, I'm bringing on my friend Ryan, who has an extra decade of sailing experience and a few stories to tell about the violent weather in those upper levels of the Beaufort scale. Ryan and I met in the summer of 2015, when he was the captain for my first official boat job with a summer camp in northern Washington. I had been attending and working for the camp for years, so was totally entrenched in the culture. But as it can often seem for outsiders of that culture, summer camp can kind of be cult-like. So Ryan taught me lots about boats, and I taught him a lot about what it's like to survive in a cult on an island in the middle of Washington. It was great. <laughs> that's pretty accurate. Yeah, that's 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 a pretty pretty good synopsis. Yeah. I started working on the water, kind of how you got started as a deckhand in 2005 up here in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in California, but I'd never been on boats at all and went out to the San Juan Islands for, you know, the first couple of weeks of working on the boat. And I was like, this is where I want to like live and die. This is the most beautiful place I've ever been worked in Mexico, I've worked in Alaska, I've worked in New England, and I've worked up and down all of the West Coast U.S. states. So what's the worst storm that you've been in? There's been a couple. I was in the tail end of a hurricane in Maine, and by the time hurricanes get to Maine, they're pretty beat up. They've lost a lot of their teeth. It's really spent a lot of its energy, but I I was in the tail end of one, and it was incredibly windy, incredibly surgy so the tide went way above what it ought to and it just it rained like it was a tropical equatorial rainforest I'd I'd never seen rain like that we'd pulled into port on that one to hunker down which really for hurricanes is the only thing you want to do when you're in a boat even if you're all the way up in Maine hurricanes get their power from the ocean so the farther inland you are the better off you'll be In the U.S., we mostly see hurricanes on the East Coast because of a specific piece of the ocean, the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream brings warm water from the tropics into the Gulf of Mexico and up the East Coast. And remember how storms form when warm, watery air rises and then new air spirals in to fill its place? Well, that's a hurricane. Warm water near the equator heats up the air above it, causing the start of a storm. But because the Gulf Stream keeps bringing that warm water north, the storm above it can follow building and building off the energy in that water until it turns into a hurricane. In order to start and sustain a hurricane, the ocean surface has to be at least 80 degrees, which is why most hurricanes happen between August and November, because that's when the water is the warmest. That's also why hurricanes die out when they hit colder pockets of water or land. Most of my time in Maine was in the summer when the weather's really nice, but we got caught by a couple of really quick squalls in the summer that surprised me how fast they came up. I remember one really windy day. It was a beautiful sailing day. It's like 70 degrees outside. We had all of our sails up. It was just perfect. And then we heard two captains of other boats talking on the radio. And one guy was like, yeah, where are you going? No, oh, I think I'm going over here. And uh, yeah, oh, good spot, good spot. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of a sentence, I got to take in sail right now. And we're like, where are they? Oh, and we like looked over there and we just saw this line of clouds scudding towards us. And the captain literally had just enough time to look at me and go, take them in. And we took in both topsails. And before they were on the deck, we were healed all the way over. It probably took me six minutes to take in the topsails. 
So in six minutes, it went from being out of our sight to completely soaking me to the bone with rain and healing us all the way over and shipping water. A squall is a storm that usually only lasts a few minutes, but where the wind speed increases by at least 18 miles an hour almost immediately. One second, it will be sunny and calm. The next, it'll be hailing sideways. And let me tell you, squalls are great for keeping sailors on their toes. The worst one at sea I've ever seen was just a pretty general winter storm in Southern California. That one was big. I can probably send you some pictures of that one because uh, there's one picture of me just running in this action shot of just running towards the quarterdeck because the entire front of the boat is underwater. The whole deck was like a hot tub. It was terrible. Waist deep water. When you shipped a wave, it would stay aboard for a minute. It was a really bad storm. And it was a small crew and we'd been on the boat for a while. So we felt fairly confident, but it was a little spooky and we got beat up and the boat got beat up and it was just like, wow, this is quite a demonstration of power. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been on a boat during a lightning storm? Yeah, on both coasts. So lightning's pretty rare here in the Pacific Northwest, especially on the water. In the summer, when that land heats up a lot and is bringing a lot of warm, moist air from the sea towards land, those clouds build pretty quickly and they turn into thunderheads. And so you get thunder and lightning every once in a while, but usually not on the water, more like towards the Cascades where those clouds are forming. That having been said, off the West Coast, I think we're around about 100 miles offshore. And yeah, we had a lightning storm out there, definitely had one or two strikes on the water. And it was fairly far from us, but still pretty spooky. Thunderstorms always have lightning, even if you can't see it, because thunder is caused by lightning. To form lightning, a storm needs to pull warm, wet air up fast enough to freeze all the little water droplets. These ice particles then bounce around the storm and inevitably smash into each other. But when the ice bits collide, they can pull pieces off each other, which creates an electric charge. When too much of this charge builds up, it'll zoom out to something that has the opposite charge like another part of the storm, or the ground. That zooming charge is lightning. It tends to hit tall things because those tall things, like trees or boat masts, are closer to the storm, so the lightning doesn't have to travel as far to get to that opposite charge. We get thunder from lightning because the lightning energy heats up the surrounding air to 18,000 degrees, and when air gets this warm, things definitely come back to density. The crazy hot air expands, and because it expands so fast, it actually creates a sound wave, which is thunder. We hear thunder after we see lightning, because light travels faster in our atmosphere than sound does, which is also how you get the general rule of thumb, where the time between the lightning strike and the thunder can tell you how far away the storm is. For every five seconds between the lightning and thunder, the storm is another mile away. Right now, as you're listening to this podcast, there are about 2,000 thunderstorms happening around the world. Now, on the East Coast, thunder and lightning is a much more common occurrence in the place of Maine where I was. Yeah, we had a couple of pretty dramatic lightning storms there, too. And that's the kind of thing where usually there'd be a prediction that we'd listen to on the radio in the morning. So we'd plan, hey, let's not be far from like a cove that has maybe some trees that are taller than our mast when that occurs. So we'd usually duck into a harbor or something like that. But yeah, there was a couple of times we were caught out in the open and it was unpleasant and beautiful. Finding things that are taller than you takes on a whole new meeting when you have a 75-foot mast above you. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah. There was two harbors in Maine that we were kind of looking towards when lightning storms were predicted because they were very small coves, just enough room for the boat to turn around and plenty of tall trees and steep hills. So we usually tried to be around those places. One we called Cookie Bite because it looked like a little bite out of a cookie. It did not have a name on the chart. It was like such a small little cove that no one would bother to name it. The other one, it had a name on the chart, but it was locally known as God's Pocket. <laughs> yeah. Now, before I get into more questions for Ryan, I'm going to take a bit of time to describe tornadoes. The formation of tornadoes is also known as tornado genesis, which is a pretty rad name if you ask me. And it all comes down to wind. When two pockets of air are moving at different speeds, you get a thing called wind shear. Say, some wind is blowing at 40 miles an hour, but then next to it there is wind that's blowing at 5 miles an hour. The air between the two wind speeds is getting pulled faster on one side than the other, and this causes it to rotate. This is a physical process known as vorticity, and you can see it in water and ice as well as in air. This rotating air can start out horizontally, and then get pulled vertically by the rising air of a storm, eventually growing to touch the ground. Or the air can start rotating vertically from the beginning, usually near the ground, and then grow into a tornado from there. The storm-based tornadoes are usually the most dangerous, but the ones that start out vertical have a bit more creativity with how they appear, and can cause things like water spouts. Another interesting phenomenon that can happen is a water spout. What is a water spout? Uh, we could define it as my personal nightmare. So a, a water spout, well, it's, it's like a tornado at sea. It's a hyper-localized phenomenon, and it actually picks up water with it, so it looks like a little water tornado. There's a lot of historic accounts of water spouts. Sailors take ridiculous accounts of everything, like we log everything, and they're using logs, they're using old 19th century ship logs now to track weather trends and themes, which I think is brilliant. The problem is working on a ship in a storm is terrifying. And so you always wonder how exaggerated are we getting? And we have a system of judging how bad storms are at sea, which is called the Beaufort scale. But at the end of the day, it's really how you interpret it. No one's out there with a yardstick measuring wave height. There was a story I told, I think I was in a bar telling some people about it that weren't there. And then a guy who was on the boat with me was like, it was nowhere near that bad. I was like, really? I embellish story. I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody else, maybe more so of embellishing some stories. But like, I really wasn't trying to make that one sound that bad. And I had a really good conversation with him later. And I was like, okay, what, what do you think it was? How bad was it? Beaufort's out of 12. A 10 is like, let me look it up real quick since I'm thinking about it. Uh, very high waves with long overhanging crests. The resulting foam in great patches is blown in dense white streaks along the direction of the wind. The whole surface of the sea takes on a white appearance. The tumbling of the sea becomes more immense and shock-like. And we looked up the Beaufort scale just like I'm doing now, and, he, and my friend was like, was the entire ocean an ocean of white foam? And I was like, no. You're right. So maybe that's inaccurate. And then we were trying to figure it out too. And I think we figured out it was a force nine, which is called a severe gale. A 10 would be a storm, 11 would be violent storm, and 12 would be hurricane. So we have ways of deciding what classifies as what, but a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder and how we judge that. And for sea officers, the plan is always to try and remain as calm and neutral as you can when you're writing that stuff down and leave the really scary running around stuff to the sailors for a minute so you can just 
logically decide what the next course of action is and things like that. But boy, it's hard to shut that part of that panic part of your brain down and accurately judge what's going on. No technology is going to replace human error until they replace all sailors with robots. What would your job be if your maritime career was suddenly taken over by robots? <laughs> uh, well, personally, I, uh, I, I welcome our new robot overlords. Uh, <laughs> i say that right now. Put it on the record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's out there on the internet now. They're listening. Yeah, very good. What would my job be? Oh, boy. If robots take over the sea, I will either be a high school history teacher or a human sea pirate that attacks robot vessels. Ooh, I love it. You'd be the modern day Indiana Jones. So you teach during the day and then after the end of your teaching day, you'd climb out the window and then go be a robot taking sea pirate. Yeah, I like this. This makes it sound way more romantic than my likely future life would be. So yes, (laughs) yes, I'll take that one. We did just talk about how sailors sometimes embellish stories. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do you wanna plug your social media or anything like that? I have a small company. I do tourism to the beautiful San Juan Islands up here in Washington, where I met Kate. I've got an old 1940s wooden fishing boat that's been converted to take passengers. And so I take people kayaking and hiking in the San Juan Islands. And CascadiaDiscoveries.com is the website for that. And fishing underscore boat underscore Duke is uh, the Instagram for my boat. So if you want to see cute boat photos, then that's where you go for that. But yeah, those are the things I do. Cool. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for making science achievable and listenable for a non-scientist like me. Yay. Yeah. And now the episode recap. Storms form when air rushes into a low pressure zone and then rises. This rising air cools off, and when it cools, the water condenses into clouds. The strength of a storm's wind is dependent on the difference between the low and nearby high pressure, and how close together they are. The closer the highs and lows, the faster the wind. Different storm phenomenon happen after this general beginning, based on where they are and what's happening in them. Hurricanes start over the ocean and can gain so much power because they can travel for miles, picking up warm, moist air from the surface of the ocean. That warm air rises, and the surrounding air spirals in. Thunderstorms occur when water in the rising air actually freezes. Those ice pieces then bounce around, hitting and pulling at each other and creating an electric charge. When enough of that charge builds up, voila, you've got a lightning bolt. And when the lightning bolt ignites, it heats up the surrounding air so much that a sound wave shoots out too, creating thunder. Squalls, tornadoes, and water spouts are more localized than a full-on hurricane or thunderstorm but they still all occur because of the way the air is moving around and interacting with different packets of air next door. To try to make storm reporting the same no matter who is recording it, we have a few different measurements and labeling methods, like hurricane categories or the Beaufort scale. And while technologies and computers are recording weather, sure, we can accurately plop a storm into one of those levels, but when people are recording it, Well, there will always be some air that is involved, especially when the low pressure from the storm is increasing your own mental pressure. I know we've all been stuck inside these days, but hopefully that also means you've had a bit more time to observe the weather that is happening outside your window. Many weather apps or stations will tell you the air pressure, and I encourage you to start predicting your own weather based on the pressure measurements. Did the pressure drop from when you woke up in the morning? Well, then you'll probably see clouds, rain, or storms in the near future, and you may not have to water your garden. 
Is the pressure high and holding steady for a few days? Then pull a comfy chair up to the window and enjoy the sun. Information in this episode came from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, and their Severe Storms Laboratory, which has a great website with lots of readable science and fun weather photos. <laughs>